David French, we are at a really interesting point in the relationship between the church and US politics. Tell me why you think so many white evangelicals voted for Trump. I've got a two-word answer for that, and the two words are self-defense. Um, it is – there is a widespread perception uh, in the white evangelical community, and it's a perception based on quite a few important facts that the left – the secular left in this in this country um, is dead set on – infringing on the religious liberties of evangelical Christians in the United States, uh, is dead set on doing things like making sure that Christian schools conform to particular social agendas or they'll lose tax exemptions that could force them to close, uh, dead set on suppressing free speech of Christians, uh, dead set, for example, on expanding abortion rights to the extent to which abortion is taxpayer-funded. So there were quite a few evangelicals who literally looked at the 2016 election and said, we we may not like Donald Trump at all, but we're voting in self-defense because Hillary Clinton is is determined to infringe on our core civil liberties. Was she really that toxic? Well, <laughs> let, let's just put it this way. She did not moderate her social, uh, her progressivism one iota to win the election. So she had come out and supported, for example, taxpayer funding of abortion, which is uh, really a red line for an awful lot of people. Um, she had not in any way, you know, even though the, the Clinton administration back in the 1990s had passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was, you know, one of the more f important federal uh, legislative protections for religious liberty, um, she had pretty much abandoned that language um, and had indicated, you know, it had courted a lot of far left organizations that had been actually attacking religious liberty of evangelical organizations. So let's just put it this way. She gave evangelicals no sense of comfort at all. She did not try to court evangelical voters, white evangelical voters at all. She uh, did not uh, moderate any of the more extreme progressive social stances that a lot of the uh, evangelical voters are concerned about at all. So it was kind of a curious thing. She was, on the one hand, trying to cast herself as someone who is less extreme than Donald Trump, trying to cast herself as somebody who was you could entrust with power as opposed to Donald Trump, and yet was um, advancing and embracing a series of causes that evangelicals had good reason to believe threatened their religious freedom. You mentioned abortion as a red line issue. Explain to me why it's so important in this country for Christians. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of reasons why. One is the most basic, and the most basic reason is that if you talk to your average evangelical voter, they firmly believe that the uh, that an abortion is the taking of a human life without due process and without justification, uh, lawful justification. So in other words, abortion is an act of unjustified killing. And so if you believe that abortion is an act of unjustified killing, um, then, you know, there's a moral imperative to do something about that. And then on top of that, and this is something that's unique to this country uh, that has really poisoned the debate. Um, traditionally in this country, abortion rights were a subject of democratic debate. So a state, different states could come to different 
substantially different legal conclusions about the lawfulness of abortion, depending on the, the values and, and the mores of their citizens. But in the 1970s, the Supreme Court essentially created a constitutional right to an abortion in the case called Roe versus Wade. Now, there's no constitutional right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution. It's not there. It was inferred from the existence of other rights. And what happened is, at one stroke, the Supreme Court took one of the most important debates in American public life and removed it in many ways from the democratic process. And so what that did is it elevated the importance of judicial nominations. It increased the frustration of pro-life Americans who could win hearts and minds and still not change the law. And so it's been sort of a a cancer eating away at the American body politic ever since. So when Scalia died right before the election, that was a crucial moment. Oh, incredibly crucial, because essentially the balance of the court was four, four, and one. Uh, There were four strong conservatives, reliably conservative on many issues, uh, reliably, or, you know, moderately reliably originalist on many issues. And then you had four uh, strong progressive judges who had their own distinct judicial philosophy. And then you have uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who kind of floated back and forth, making himself the swing vote on a lot of a lot of issues. Had Scalia been replaced by a reliable progressive, it would have decisively swung the balance of power of the court for the foreseeable future. And so uh, there's an awful lot of Christians, and going back to the point of Christians viewing voting for Donald Trump as a vote in self-defense, an awful lot of Christians saw that uh, saw that situation and said, "If we don't vote to stop this next judicial nomination, we're going to face a progressive judicial majority for the foreseeable future." And Christians see the Supreme Court often as the last line of defense for their religious liberty. So the last line of defense would be in the other side's hands. When you say religious liberty, what do you mean more broadly in addition to abortion? Well, yeah, no, that's a great question because uh, the definition of religious liberty is is one of the more hotly debated topics in the United States. Um, there are a lot of folks who say religious liberty is just some sort of a disguise or license to discriminate. But I, I define it like this when I'm talking to uh, particularly to non-religious audiences. Religious liberty is essentially the 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 right to believe, speak, and act in accordance with your deepest beliefs. Um, so long as those deep the, those actions don't infringe upon the legally you know the the legally cognizable rights of others. So um, religious liberty is the liberty to act in accordance to with that which is most important to you, uh, that which defines your fundamental worldview and your fundamental view of morality about the world. And has Trump delivered on that in this first year of his term? Well, you know that the the. Um, on religious liberty and the defense of religious liberty, uh, there's been a few things in the Trump administration that have been that have made a lot of evangelicals believe that they're been rewarded for their loyalty. Um, number one is not only has Trump appointed a very um, a reliably originalist judge in, in Justice Gorsuch to the Supreme Court of the United States, he's nominated a number of very high quality originalist judges to the federal courts of appeal. So if you're going to say, um, if you're a conservative Christian and you're going to look at Trump's record in his first term of office, his judicial selections are top of mind. Now, some of his agencies have also implemented rules that are, are in the process of implementing rules that protect religious liberty. Most no, notably, the Department of Health and Human Services is really beefing up its protection of existing protections for rights of conscience. So American law prohibits um, 
prohibits health uh, healthcare institutions from forcing doctors and nurses, healthcare institutions that receive federal funding, which is virtually every one of any importance in the U.S., from forcing doctors and nurses from participating in or assisting uh, abortion, assisted suicide, uh, sterilization. And this has been a, a kind of under-enforced part of American law for a while, and the Trump administration is really beefing that up. So from a, a religious liberty standpoint, people have not had very much cause to complain about what the Trump administration has done. But when it comes to his moral standing, I mean, what we see from the other side of the Atlantic is basically a cartoon figure, almost everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, we, you see the same cartoon figure on the this side of the Atlantic. Uh, so that's a re- it's a really important what what you have facing evangelicals right now is a challenge that, quite frankly, um, they off they did not expect and are have been unprepared to deal with. So let me back up a little bit. Since the emergence of the evangelical, the conservative evangelical movement in the United States, the conservative evangelical political movement, I should say, there has been a consistent message that the policies of a, of a president matter or the policy, policies of any given politician matter, but so does their character. Their character matters because... For multiple reasons. One, um, character impacts culture, and culture is more important than politics. So that's one reason. Another one is based in some biblical notions that uh, a nation is in in some ways judged by the character of its leadership. Um, There's an awful lot of uh, elements from, you know, if you look at at biblical history, um, you would see that the character of the king matters a great deal. Uh, And so, there's a the- biblical theological argument that the character of a ruler matters, and then there's a practical argument that the character of a ruler impacts the culture. And so this all came together in the 1990s when Bill Clinton, a man whose policies, aside from his stance on abortion, were relatively moderate. In fact, he had enacted some policies that were pretty conservative in some ways, and there was really high economic growth, a lot of econo- uh, you know, a lot of prosperity, peace during his presidency, but he was a bad actor in a lot of ways in his private life. And evangelicals were very loudly saying this character matters. The fact that he he has cheated on his wife with an intern, the fact that he's been, you know, very seriously accused of rape and sexual assault. I mean, these things matter a great deal. The character of a leader matters. And that was the unified message of the evangelical movement for a very long time. It is not anymore. Why are people giving Trump a free pass? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I was asked the other day if evangelicals were hypocritical in the 1990s. And I, and I said, no, they were not hypocriticals. It's just that their principles were untested. They had not had an opportunity to pay a price for their principle. And so if evangelicals had upheld the principles they were arguing for in the 1990s, they would have said, we appreciate Trump's policies. We're utterly opposed to his character. And we're going to continue to consistently call out his character defects. Um, and they've not done that in large part for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it goes back to the fear that we we talked about earlier. And the fear is this fear that if they lose an election, uh, if the other side gets in control, they'll lose fundamental civil liberties. And 
And Trump is a guy who values loyalty. And so there's a lot of evangelicals who don't want to challenge Trump on his character because they fear that he will stop defending them. So there's fear involved. And then some of it is, you know, there's a little bit of expedience. It's it's really easy to hold a principle. It's, it's very easy to hold to a theological position in public when con- holding to it consistently means you you don't pay any price. But the instant you might pay a price, whether it's a loss of election or a loss of Trump's affection, then you begin to see the real cost of maintaining moral character. And as we know from history, there's an awful lot of people who are not willing to bear that cost. And they'll they'll rationalize it as much as they need to rationalize it. But, you know, right now we're looking at the very sad reality that evangelicals have gone from being the subgroup of Americans who are most likely to say that character counts in a politician to now the subgroup of Americans who are least likely to say that character counts and more likely to say that the only thing that matters are the policies of the president. Why couldn't the Republican Party find a more virtuous candidate? I mean, your name was in the mix for a while there. <laughs> yeah, but, well, it's still hard to believe that hack, that actually happened. But, um, you know, one of the things that there's this phrase uh, from a book uh, called The Black Swan that essentially says, you know, sometimes there are world events that are tough to explain because they are so unique and depend on such a unique combination of circumstances. And such is the case with the nom- you know, the nomination and election of Donald Trump. Uh, Trump ran against a number of much more virtuous Republican opponents. Um, but the emphasis on that is a number of them. <laughs> he ran against, uh, I believe it was 17 opponents, 17. And he was the most famous member of the primary field, running with a very distinct, unique message, one that scratched uh, the itch of an awful lot of Republican primary voters who are wanting somebody to be a fighter. And then the rest of the series candidates split the vote. So you were facing a situation where uh, by the end of the primary season, as the primary season was winding down, Trump had won not even close to a majority of Republican primary voters, but he was winning the Republican primary because he had a he had a strong plurality. But he ended up winning the Republican primary with the smallest percentage of the Republican electorate voting for him since the start of the primary era. So he took advantage there of a split in the vote amongst a number of other candidates. And then when he got into the presidential election, he took advantage of the fact that he was running against one of the two most disliked politicians in the history of American favorability polling, and that was Hillary Clinton. The other one of the two most disliked politicians in the history of favorability polling was Donald Trump. So he was very fortunate in his opposition. Um, I'm interested, you mentioned the kind of theology, the biblical narrative about leadership. Now, there's a counter-narrative that we've seen emerging in some places about um, an evil king, for want of a better term, who still delivers for God's people. Do, we, do you think we're seeing that today? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting argument that's constantly being made that I'm hearing, is that God can use an evil, thi- an evil king to accomplish good things. And I think that much, you know, if you if you look at biblical history, there are examples of evil kings who, um, for you know what, for many reasons, uh, have shown mercy to God's people or have done things for God's people. Uh, the The distinction, though, and the difference between, say, a Donald Trump and an evil biblical king, is that God's people didn't put the evil biblical kings in power. Um, and here, 
Christians put, evangelical Christians put Donald Trump in power. And so in, in the biblical times, there are the God's people are crying out to the evil king for mercy or crying out for justice, and occasionally they are heard. In this case, the Christians were crying out to put Donald Trump in office, and I think that's a very substantially different thing. What's going on in the Republican Party? If Christians can mobilize, evangelicals can mobilize around uh, Trump as a candidate, but they couldn't agree on a common candidate of virtue between them. You know, what's going on in the Republican Party is a question that everyone is asking all the time. And I think we don't really know the answer yet. You know, we're one year into the Trump, um, we're one year into the Trump's first term, slightly more than one year in, and there's a, a civil war raging. Uh, in in the conservative movement more broadly, in the Republican Party, uh, and certainly within the evangelical Christian wing of the Republican Party. And it's a civil war waging over the value of character, what kind of policies the president should put forward, and how much and to what extent should members of the Republican Party hold him accountable for his personal conduct versus overlooking it so long as he does, you know, takes policy actions that they like. And all of this is in a state of flux. Um, and in fact, I think that the fact that this argument is raging is one of the reasons why Trump's approval rating is as low as it is, in spite of the fact that there are a number of pretty solid accomplishments his first year. If he was less of a divisive figure and he was ending his first year as he has with a big tax cut, high quality judicial nominations and the Islamic caliphate of ISIS in ruins in the Middle East, he would be substantially above where he is right now. But you know, he's in a position right now where the the Republican Party is very divided in its attitude towards him um, and is very divided by age. For example, in a recent poll, more than 80 percent of young Republicans ages 18 to 25 w- said they wanted to see a primary challenger against Donald Trump in 2020. And almost 80 percent of older Republicans, 65 and older, did not want to see a primary challenger. So the nature of the conservative movement, the nature of the evangelical Christian conservative movement and the nature of the Republican Party itself is in a state of flux right now. You've been quite clear that you don't agree with Trump on a lot of things. Talk us through your feelings about him and his performance so far. Well, let me put it this way. I, I would just say I believe the same thing in the, in the 20, in 2016, 2017, 2018 that I believed in 1995, 96, 97, 98. <laughs> and that is that the character of a leader matters and the policies matter. Uh, and the character of a leader impacts the culture, and the policies of a leader impact the culture. And on that ground, I'm not going to give, in, I'm not going to give an inch on that. And so, where Trump's policies have been positive, and I and I view as a conservative that his judicial nominations have been positive, his military policy in Iraq and Syria has been positive, his tax cuts have been positive, some of the actions of some of his agencies like the HHS and Department of Education have been positive, and I've said that. Very clearly, and I've praised the individuals within the administration that I think who are responsible for these good things and praised Trump himself for it. But the things that I think are not positive, the things I think are actually destructive, are also quite numerous. I mean, when he when he equivocated after the Charlottesville Charlottesville terror attack in the summer of 2017, when he implemented his uh, limited travel ban in a very malicious uh, and incompetent manner early 2017, uh, when he has tweeted irresponsibly and recklessly, when he calls, uh, when he's, you know, name calling against his 
political opponents in a way that is designed to exacerbate existing tensions in the United States. When he's uh, credibly accused of having a, an affair with a porn star and covering it up with hush money. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, I'm going to also talk about those things as well, why they're a problem and why I think that they have a larger impact beyond just the walls of Trump's household. You and your family yourself received death threats, didn't you, from some of his supporters? Yeah, well, in the 2015, from 2015 to 2016, um, my wife and I and my family were in the crosshairs of a movement in the U.S. that we call the alt-right. And this was a, the alt-right is a white nationalist movement, um, mainly concentrated online, although it has you know, a real-world presence on occasion. And we were subjected to withering uh, attacks. My my youngest daughter is African-American. She was born in Ethiopia. We adopted her in, in 2010. And I saw pictures of her face uh, photoshopped into gas chambers, modified uh, to look like she's in slave fields. I saw my, my wife's uh, blog. Uh, she's a, a writer for a, a website called Pathios, a religious website. Was The comment section was covered with images of murdered African-Americans, just very, very graphic images. Um, and then my uh, we received a direct threat, at least one. Uh, my wife had a call, a phone call actually interrupted with her father. Uh, a voice broke into the line while she was talking, started uh, screaming and swearing at her about Donald Trump. And this is the this stuff uh, at varying degrees of intensity continued for more than a year, uh, running from uh, late summer of 2015 all the way up and through November 2016. And it it was uh, it was something we had to learn to deal with as we continued to be in the public eye. And these are Trump's people. Well, they certainly professed to be Trump supporters. I mean, that's why they were upset at us was for opposing Donald Trump. Um, and they made that clear in no uncertain terms. I mean, it, it was, you know, they they attacked uh, they these are the alt right, which we should not con- confuse with the mainstream conservative movement. In fact, it's self it itself. They call themselves the alt right because they want to be an alternative right. So um, this is not the mainstream conservative movement, but they they loathe uh, interracial or uh, mixed race families. Uh, they loathe adoption um, from particularly overseas adoption. Um, they supported Donald Trump wholeheartedly. Uh, and, and engaged in no holds barred tactics to try to intimidate his critics into silence. And I was hardly the only one. I mean, there were there were uh, people like my friend Ben Shapiro who received more anti-Semitic attacks uh, in 2015-2016 than you know it may have been the entire rest of of you know Jewish writers and speakers and pundits combined. And a lot of those folks received a ton of attacks. I mean, people had to get security systems for their homes. They had to start carrying weapons. Um, you know, it, it was it was a it was a dangerous and scary time in many ways uh, as those attacks multiplied. You have said that it might be time to retire the term evangelical. Can you explain what you mean? Yes. Um, I don't think if you ask an average person what the term evangelical means, I think the answer is morphing into a primarily p- political term as opposed to a religious term especially as the prominence of the evangelical movement in the Republican Party and the indis- and and how indispensable the religious uh, the evangelical movement is to the Republican Party's um, ability to win elections the term is becoming extraordinarily political and it's not its origin is not political at all and so 
The problem with that is if as if you identify yourself as an evangelical, you know, as a Christian, my prime my, my primary identity is not a political identity. My primary identity is my uh, faith in Jesus Christ, and my love for human beings is not limited to love for people in my own political tribe. My love for human beings is an imitation of Jesus Christ. And so if I'm explaining who I am to people, and I use a term that for probably 60% of the United States right now immediately and primarily labels me politically, then I feel like it's inherently misleading. Um, and I think as America becomes increasingly secular, we use the term evangelical was used as a term to distinguish between various Christian groups and to sort of distinguish yourself as someone who's biblically Orthodox Protestant. Um, and now I think it's because of the increasing secularization of our country, I think I'm fine with just calling myself a Christian. It's interesting that this challenge dilemma comes up now at this point in the America's political history. Tim Keller has written along the same lines. Do you think we're getting to the point where if you are an evangelical leader in the States and you don't challenge Trump's uh, character or ways of doing things, then you're being seen to condone him because of this mass evangelical support? Yeah, you know, evangelical leaders who are what I would call Trump skeptics or Trump critics uh, find themselves between a rock and a hard place right now because if you do challenge Trump, uh, what you find is you get a lot of anger from your own congregation. You'll get a lot of anger from your own friends. If you do not challenge Trump, you will get a consistent criticism from the other side that says you're complicit in the worst things that he does. And so uh, it is it is very tense right now within the evangelical within the evangelical Christian ranks. It's very it's a very tense and uncomfortable time for evangelical Christian leaders, many of whom are used to being pretty widely admired and expected and even you know revered to use that if I could use that term. I mean, evangelical Christianity in the U.S. has a real problem with kind of Christian celebrity worship. So you've got a lot of leaders who are very much used to sort of the applause of the Christian masses who, if they speak from their core conviction and speak from their core conscience, they find that that applause turns into booze very quickly. And so it, it creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of anxiety, and people are still working through it right now. And looking ahead then from this place of dilemma, this place of challenge, how do you think this presidency is going to affect the church in the long term? You know, I, I I hate to say this, but I think that the the effect on the church, at least the public perceptions of the church, is going to depend an awful lot on the success of the presidency of Donald Trump. And the success on that by that I mean is he elected or reelected. So if Trump is a, if if there's a situation where Trump, um, a, a, well, there's several. <laughs> So many different scenarios. So let's just we'll briefly say this. If Trump can learn to moderate his behavior, govern uh, responsibly, and treat people decently, then there will be a strong argument that the church helped moderate an immoderate man. Um, and I don't have a lot of optimism there. I do think that the, that Christian conservatives have had a positive impact on his policies and a positive impact on the personnel of the administration. I'm waiting for evidence that there's a positive impact on the character of the president himself. Um, if the presidency continues the way it is continuing, and if 
Christians continue to believe that they have to support him out of self-defense. In other words, that the progressive movement in this country continues to sort of aggressively um, aggressively oppose Christian civil liberties, then I think we're going to see a situation where the divisiveness just magnifies. And I think that's the most likely scenario. I think the most likely scenario is I see no evidence of moderation on the side of the secular left, and I see no evidence of temperance or prudence on the side of the Trump administration, uh, or on the side of Donald Trump personally. And so given that, that's the worst possible situation because it exacerbates existing divisions and then both sides have a rationalization or have a pretext for continued hostility. Christians have a rationalization or pretext because they genuinely fear their civil liberties that are at stake. And progressive ha- progressives have a rationalization because they genuinely see the character defects of the Trump administration and how he often and intentionally turns American against American, often in the most malicious and spiteful way. And how do you think this presidency will affect the future of the Republican Party? Boy, you know, again, that that's a question that um, asked me again in nine months and I might have a very different answer. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I think presidencies to have a true long-term impact on the course of a party um, generally have to go two terms. If a presidency is one term, the impact that they usually have is whatever just we just did, let's do the opposite of that. Uh, so, for example, um, Jimmy Carter was a one-term Democratic president, and his presidency was so disastrous that it ushered in three consecutive Republican terms. So no one was walking around in 1984, 88, and 92 looking for the next Jimmy Carter. So if Donald Trump is a one-term president, and I, I think it's safe to say that no one in the Republican Party will be running around going, let's find that reality TV magic again. Um, but if he wins two terms, what you would then have is an awful lot of people saying, well, this, this, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. We have to do it with a very blunt, pugilistic style where we fight, fight, fight and double down on our base and look, let's stop worrying about who slept with whom. Let's stop worrying about who, how he spent his money. Let's stop worrying about, you know, his rhetoric towards this or that uh, minority group. Uh, he's just got to fight. He's just got to fight. And, and the better he fights, the more of our guys he's going to get to the polls. And the more of our guys he gets to the polls, uh, the more we're going to win. And that, so a lot depends. You hate to say it. None of those arguments really had sort of a, a truly principled response to them. The, the outcome depended on the practical reality on the ground, and the principles often follow the practical reality on the ground. If the last couple of years have taught us anything, they've taught us that. 